Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the Australian National University and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the ANU. So good to be back with you again, Anagreta to continue what I think is going to be a long mini-series on the systems that are under strain um, at the moment and what we can do about those systems to improve people's lives, to improve people's health, to improve planetary health. Absolutely. We've had series before where we had difficulty stopping, and I'm thinking particularly of the Wellbeing Economic Series from a year or two ago, Uh, but this mini-series potentially could go indefinitely. Um, I'm very much enjoying it. I hope the listeners are. Yeah, I think what we might have is a theme for the year in what we're doing here. And of course, Policy Forum Pod is based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and is produced by Policy Forum. We offer a range of short courses and degree programs that address the very issues that we're talking about in this mini-series, ranging from how we, we deal from challenges around energy and water from a policy and economics and an environmental perspective. We offer degree programs um, around health policy and around social policy. So do check out what we've got on offer. You can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Anna Greta, would you like to talk us through what it is we're going to be talking about today? Well, Sharon, last week we had a fantastic conversation with Tom Longdon and Lee White talking about energy security in the Australian context and thinking about the challenges that we face in terms of the national energy grid and the national energy strategy, uh, particularly with the price of gas and with the energy vulnerability that that we face. And today I think we're going to find some of those themes overlap We're going to continue our talk about environments under strain, and this time we're going to talk about water. According to the 2022 United Nations Sustainable Development Report, nearly 100% of Australians had access to basic drinking water services, and 100% were using safely managed water services. But according to new research from the Australian National University, which has been published recently in Nature, that UN statistic does not tell the full picture, particularly not for regional and remote Australia, where serious disparities in access to adequate drinking water quality and supply are affecting the health and the lives of more than 600,000 Australians. So today on the pod, we want to explore how policymakers can ensure all Australians truly have access to clean water and what policy changes need to be made to ensure that water is used sustainably into the future. We are delighted to have two authors of the ANU study with us today to talk through these issues. And I might get both of you to introduce yourselves, if that's okay. Evie, would you like to go first? Sure. Thanks for having me today. Um, I'm a PhD student studying at the Crawford School of Public Policy. And I am now living in Mbantua, Alice Springs, where I was born and grew up, but I spent a lot of my life living in Canberra and studied at the ANU. I'm doing my PhD looking at the policy context of drinking water issues in remote Aboriginal communities in Central Australia. And I'm working alongside two local Aboriginal organisations, Purple House and the Central Land Council. 
That's fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us today. And Paul, you're sitting beside Evie. Could you introduce yourself to the audience? G'day, Anna Greta. Thanks very much for the opportunity. My name's Paul Verval. I'm Research Fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy and the ANU Institute for Water Futures. I work on water economics and policy uh, across drinking water services, large water infrastructure, and nature-based approaches to lots of different things like uh, water quality control, flood mitigation, and carbon removal. It's great to have you both with us today, so welcome. Um, Paul, I wonder if we could begin with you, and and we mentioned in the introduction uh, the study that you have both been involved in um, that was looking particularly at access to to drinking water in regional and remote Australia and a range of associated issues. Paul, could we begin by, by asking you to just tell us a little bit about that study and perhaps map out just some of your key findings to set the scene for this conversation? Thanks, Sharon. Uh, In terms of this study, it it all started with a pretty simple question, and it's how many Australians lack access to safe, good quality drinking water. Uh, You wouldn't think that that would be too much of a difficult question to answer, but it turns out uh, that it is. Uh, In Australia, uh, our national reporting uh, on drinking water quality doesn't include service providers with less than 10,000 connections. So what that means is that They're all of the people and communities who are most exposed to challenges around uh, might be harsh environmental conditions, ageing infrastructure, uh, a whole range of factors that affect drinking water quality um, in regional and remote areas aren't actually included in our national level statistics. So what we did in this work is we uh, pulled together all of the public reporting that we could find from across Australia uh, larger um, state-owned uh, utilities in some jurisdictions, um, local water utilities in New South Wales and Queensland, and tried to piece together uh, a picture of, of what drinking water quality looks like. And uh, what we did is we, we built on a, a recommendation from the Productivity Commission uh, to define a basic level of service uh, in terms of drinking water quality. And we defined some various different levels of service Uh, to see what that might look like in a policy context and what you might be looking at in terms of investments and where the federal government, which has a new uh, policy to uh, support drinking water in remote and regional communities, um, where they might want to be prioritising their investments. So we we found that uh, at least 25,000 people uh, across 99 uh, small communities, less than 1,000 people in them, had non-compliances with the health-based uh, uh, drinking water guideline values uh, that we have in Australia. And then if you expand that out to the aesthetic qualities of water, things that affect the, the taste, uh, the smell um, uh, of water, what it looks like, uh, whether you're going to want to drink it or not or, or, or get by bottled water or rely on other sources, um, then you're looking at about you know, at least uh, 400 locations and over 600,000 people. But in addition to those numbers, uh, there are also a lot of data gaps that we found uh, as well. Um, and one of those key data gaps is in, is in New South Wales where local water utilities aren't uh, required to report on drinking water quality under their regulations. So that's what we found. And, and one of the main findings or recommendations is that uh, Australia needs to have a national drinking water quality database. So our work provides a proof of concept. We can start working on filling in some of those data gaps and uh, you know, be able to support both policymakers to define investment priorities and, and where we need to find out more information about what the problems are, but also uh, enable uh, communities to be able to engage in a dialogue with service providers and government agencies about what they want um, in terms of improved services. Paul, I think a lot of people listening would be really shocked to hear that anyone in Australia doesn't have access to drinkable water or to water services. And, of course, we mentioned in the introduction that the the UN Sustainable Development Report of of this year found that 100% of people in Australia had um, access to water services. Is that discrepancy because those smaller communities that you mentioned are not counted, um, or is there a bigger data problem here in terms of, you know, you mentioned that you know, in New South Wales there are some real data gaps. What is the, the reason for that discrepancy? Um, is, it, is it just the smaller communities or is it more than that? 
Yeah, it's a great question, Sharon. Uh, in terms of the the data gaps, uh, so there, I guess you can break it down into a into a couple of different issues. So one is that there are places where there's water quality monitoring going on, um, but there isn't necessarily reporting. Now we went through and tried to find on all of the council websites uh, in New South Wales uh, water quality reports. Um, we found it about in about eighteen of them. Uh, in terms of being able to do a comparable assessment compared to the other jurisdictions. Um, but that leaves about 1.2 million people in regional New South Wales who don't have access to detailed information on what's in their water against you know, specific characteristics or contaminants. And then on top of that, there are also a lot of you know, remote communities where they may just not simply be monitoring uh, going on uh, at all. Um, and, you know, this may be places like the Northern Territory where, where EV works, uh, but also self-managed supplies in, in different parts uh, of Australia. Now, it's really important to, to highlight that under the Australian Drinking Water Guidelines, uh, there are indicators for you know, health-based risks, health-based guideline values for microbial um, uh, contaminants uh, and also chemical contaminants. Now, uh, for the microbial contaminants, you know, it, it is that's around E. coli, which is an indicator of potential fecal contamination um, and is not for other pathogens. So to have a non-compliance doesn't mean that water is immediately unsafe. And similarly, for the chemical guideline values, um, you know, often usually they are around long time, uh, long, long-term lifetime uh, exposure. So what we're looking at here is, is a question around, around risk. Uh, in terms of the health-based guideline values. Uh, and then in terms of the aesthetic uh, uh, guideline values, you know, that, that is a representative of, of what the water is. So if you have you know, total dissolved solids or, or hardness, so which will have scaling on your, on your appliances and, um, or sodium or, or, or other characteristics, you know, in terms of non-compliance with the guideline values, this is what on average the water is like all the time. And you know, for people who are listening to this podcast that live in the cities, it's important to realise that the, the water might be coming out brown or green or um, you know, tasting absolutely foul, uh, but that will still meet the health-based guideline values. But nobody's going to want to drink that and you're not going to want to bathe your kids in water, which is going to give them a rash and and have to turn to other uh, alternatives. So we really need to take that data around aesthetic guidelines um, values really seriously, I, I think, uh, and 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 get a better understanding of, of of you know where that's happening across Australia. Evie, you're based in the Northern Territory. You're doing research on water policy there, and I know that you're working with some of the communities that are really affected by these issues. I suspect that for people in major cities, they may not have encountered issues or really thought about water security in the Australian context very much. And these ideas then seem somewhat abstract. So I wonder whether you could talk us through what it means on the ground in parts of the Northern Territory where you've worked. What sort of things do we see when we talk about the aesthetics of the water? What What's the experience of drinking water or usable water um, in some of the areas that you're working? Yeah, sure. Thanks for the question, Anna Greta. So I've been here for the last year or so um, and I'm in the throes of fieldwork and listening to a lot of the organisations that I'm working with and learning a lot of people's stories. So I'm learning a lot of this secondhand. Um, But what I've been hearing from working with Purple House and working with Central Land Council is that the aesthetic perimeters are actually, they're affecting every single remote community in Central Australia. Um, And it's something that is I think really, as Paul was saying and as you were saying, it's it's quite hard to understand what it actually means when total dissolved solids are three times the Australian drinking water guideline or something like calcium is double the Australian drinking water guidelines. And the stories that I'm hearing from people about what that means in the everyday um, is that it's a real problem and that it's causing a lot of distress for people. It can mean that people don't trust the water in their community or it can mean that they are using things like cordial or, you know, replacing it with other things like soft drinks because the water doesn't taste very good. And, of course, that has all kinds of health implications um, and can put lots of pressure on people's bodies. Um, We see a lot of communities here with really severe scaling on the water infrastructure, so that's caused by high mineral buildup by things like high total dissolved solids and high calcium. 
And this can really impact the lifespan and efficiency of people's taps, washing machines, toilets, um, even heating and cooling systems. Um, and this is a really particular issue in overcrowded conditions where a lot of people might be sharing a home. Um, and it's a particular issue in housing that may be unsuitable for climate extremes that we're seeing in the desert as well. I'm really struck as a as a cardiologist, as a physician listening to this, that that without you know access to reliable clean water, we do see profound health impacts, not just infectious diseases, but but that's just the tip of a complex iceberg. It can affect um, all our health and well being in all sorts of ways, and one of the ways that you're alluding to is is perhaps by mentioning Purple House, and, and I suspect some people will know about Purple House as an organisation, but other others may not. Um, why is Purple House an important part of the, the matrix of thinking about water policy in the Northern Territory? And what sort of water issues do Purple House face? Yeah, so Purple House is, um, it's many things. Uh, it's primarily a non-profit Aboriginal-owned and controlled health service that provides dialysis treatment for people with kidney disease in remote communities. It also aims to improve the lives of people with kidney disease and get them back on country with family. So Purple House was started up by Bindabi Laricha people um, out in the Western Desert who wanted a dialysis unit in Kintor, a remote community out west, to keep elders in community and on country. Um, because without dialysis, people often have to travel to town, Alice Springs or Perth, um, and other town centres where you can receive dialysis, which means that people are going a long way away from home. Um, they're leaving their families. They might feel quite lonely, quite distressed, and it means that a lot of elders aren't on country to pass on their knowledge. So Purple House um, has stepped in to now run 19 remote clinics across the Northern Territory and WA and South Australia, and it also runs aged care centres. Um, and its holistic model of care is all about country and family and culture. And it operates primary healthcare, social support, and aged care services. But as you were saying, undergraduate water is really fundamental to all of the work of Purple House, um, not only because of the health implications and the pressure on people's kidneys that bad water can have in remote communities, but also because dialysis treatment for kidney disease requires a lot of good quality water. It needs to be of a quality that doesn't... Um, cause any damage to the water treatment process. They usually start with potable water and then it goes through quite a quite a long process of water treatment to get it to a medical grade. And it also requires water that's not too hot, which is increasingly becoming a problem. And a single treatment can use about 400 litres of water per person and there may be two or three people every day. Um, so it goes through a lot of water at Purple House. But they are working on systems now to try to use less water in each in each um, treatment. Yeah, it's an extraordinary organisation, Purple House, and the work that they do there is is really quite remarkable. Um, and I've I've had some patients in in uh, remote parts of New South Wales where this is an issue, and people have to travel to hospitals for dialysis, and that means travelling for many hours at a time. Three times a week is usually the the regime for dialysis, so it's not it's not at all straightforward for people who are travelling distances. Um, and so it's tremendously important that there is good water quality in these areas. Some of these issues that we're talking about, I, I find very familiar from work that I've done um, in a number of countries across the global south, where the quality of water, where access to water is such a critical issue. And we often talk about it in terms of it being a fundamental human right for people to be able be able to access water, but also having all of the kinds of practical implications that we're talking about today. And I think for, for many of us, it's very confronting to hear that in a country as wealthy as Australia, people don't have access um, to clean water of a reasonable quality. And I'd love to hear from both of you about why you think this divide has emerged between metropolitan Australia and regional and remote areas where we're seeing such such problems in terms of water quality. Um, Paul, would, would you like to, to kick off in terms of what you think it is that has created this divide? Yeah, thanks very much, Sharon. Look, I, I guess you know, in every location there are going to be different reasons why uh, there, there are challenges in, in terms of drinking water quality. So one of them can be, particularly in, in um, 
places where you're relying on border, particularly coming out of the Great Artesian Basin, that there are challenges in terms of the source water quality. So there might be high mineral content, as Evie has mentioned before, um, different types of chemical contaminants like uranium, nitrate uh, and others. Uh, Also, there has been work which has recently been done by the Water Services Association of Australia, uh, which is a preliminary report that was released last week, really highlighting uh, the complexity of the governance uh, in terms of in some remote communities, uh, you might have three different service agents or agencies and service providers uh, who are responsible you know, maybe for the infrastructure at the road. Then once it crosses over the, the fence, then you've got somebody else who's responsible. And then once it gets into their house, uh, you've got someone else who is responsible in terms of fixing any problems. So there are those governance challenges as well. Um, but look, fundamentally, uh, I think what it comes down to is is that uh, you know there are, most Australians live in cities, um, and uh, you know people. I live in Canberra. Um, the water that comes out of the tap for me uh, is it looks great, smells great, um, and I'm confident that uh, you know it's 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 healthy for me and my family, um, and that's the experience of most people around Australia. So I, I think. I'd like to think that it's partly just, you know, a lot of the Australian community just don't know um, that this is an issue. Now, there are, uh, you know, there have been various attempts uh, by governments in terms of funding programs uh, to to try and address poor drinking water quality and water insecurity. Uh, But this is not just a question about money uh, and, and funding and hard infrastructure. Uh, it's it's also about ensuring that communities are in the lead in terms of deciding on what level of service they need, um, what sustainable improvements uh, might look like. And I, th- I, I think or I hope that it appears that that is starting to come through in terms of the understanding that policymakers have uh, in terms of addressing these problems. I'd, I'd be interested to hear what, um, you know, Evie might think about all of that, uh, but you know, my, my hope is that uh, this time around, um, in terms of federal government policy, uh, that there is an understanding that the people who are affected by poor drinking water quality are, um, you know, they're, they're consumers. They're, they're not just people to be consulted and to, to, to end up with, with whatever they get. Um, there needs to be some agency and some power and decision-making around what their water services are. Evie, what are your thoughts on that? And I'd, I'd particularly love to hear from from you. You know what you're hearing from the communities where where you are at the moment in terms of of, of what people want um, and how services can meet those needs. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. Um, from what I've heard, people want information most of the time. They really want to know what's in their water. Um, how much water they're using, which is often actually really hard to gauge when communities have a bulk meter that's read by power and water. It's hard to see how much water you're using, which I think means that people sometimes feel that they don't have much control over the water that they're using in their homes and also in their communities. And it's really important to understand that a lot of water also is called unaccounted for water because it disappears in the system um, through leaks and infrastructure issues. So I think people really want to understand where their water is coming from, um, what's being done to treat the water and what they can do on their side to manage the water in their communities. Um, and I think that Paul's absolutely right that people really want to be consulted. I mean, these, there are very real implications for water security uh, for people living on country and living on their ancestral lands and for even you know, having a new dialysis unit put in or having new buildings put into communities. There are communities when where water security is such an issue that that is increasingly becoming a question. Um, and it's these communities that should be making all the decisions about how their resources are being used um, and how it will shape the growth of their community um, and where the, what their priorities are in shaping where funding should be spent, I think. Paul and Evie, there are so many issues that that this first part of our conversation has raised. We're going to take just a very short break now um, and come back perhaps to talk a little more about what it is that policymakers and governments can do 
to address some of these challenges. So listeners, don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. Water policy has long been a major challenge facing Australian governments with different interest groups often competing for limited resources in what is a drought-prone and climate-vulnerable country. Uh, and we've had a fantastic set of discussions to begin this uh, t- today's pod with Evie Rose and Dr. Paul Vervol about the water policy challenges that we face in that continent and particularly the, the communities that we know are around the country that do not have access to adequate and reliable water. Paul, you have talked a little bit about the findings from, from your report earlier in the pod. I wonder if you could explain the your call for a water quality database. What, what does this mean in practice and what steps do policymakers need to take in order to make this into a reality? Thanks, Anna Greta. Uh, what we've done in this paper is we've provided proof of concept, if you like, in terms of a national drinking water quality database. Uh, now, in, in Australia, uh, like with, with many different policy areas, in our, our federa- federation system uh, means that with water um, and water matters and water management uh, is, is thought of as being the, the domain primarily of the states and territories with, with the federal government to play a leadership role. So we, earlier on we talked about you know, some of the reasons why uh, there may be drinking water quality issues, uh, and one of those can be um, that uh, you know there is a uh, lack of coordination with federal and state, and we've heard multiple times that oh, this is a state's issue. Oh no, it's you know, it's it's a federal issue. But the good news is is that uh, the new federal government has made a commitment to expand the remit of the national. Um, a water grid fund uh, to town water supplies and regional remote communities. Uh, some of you may be aware of the National Water Grid Fund. This was the vehicle that the previous federal government used uh, to support uh, irrigation infrastructure, both feasibility studies, about $200 million worth over the last few years, and $9 billion worth of uh, investments in, in irrigation infrastructure, big dams, other pipelines, range of different projects. Uh, that was committed through that fund. So the good news is that the federal government has uh, made a commitment to expand that. But in terms of making investments, uh, we're really flying blind uh, at at an Australia-wide level and in terms of having an understanding of where the priorities might be. And that includes uh, what the health outcomes might be uh, from particular contaminants because if we don't have the data uh, going back historically and it's not consolidated, um, well, you know, your epidemiolo- epidemiologist colleagues, Anna Greta, um, are not in a position to be able to uh, uh, inform what changes to some of the guidelines m- values might be and, and what some of the health outcomes might be. So we really need a, a national drinking water quality database, um, both to inform policymakers and, as Evie pointed towards earlier on, to have some transparency in terms of the information that uh, communities have uh, in in terms of defining what their expectations are around their service levels. So, you know, a first step towards doing that uh, would be to collate all the publicly available data like we have, including going back across time, uh, to collate uh, the the data which is is there but is not released publicly, including in New South Wales and the Department of Communities in, in Western Australia as well. 
then also to have investments in uh, monitoring um, and reporting in places where that's not happening uh, already and investments in that, um, whether that is through supporting community organisations to do that or, or, or service providers. And then in addition, you've also got to think about how you're going to be using that data um, and how uh, that data is going to be available to communities to be able to uh, inform conversations with service providers and government agencies um, so that you have investments that are fit for purpose, people and place. And I should point out as well in terms of policy, now it's not just about installing reverse osmosis units uh, willy-nilly you know, all across remote parts of Australia, we really need to think about the different types of investments in, in uh, hard infrastructure but also soft infrastructure in terms of partnerships, uh, improved regulations and also natural infrastructure as well. So the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, for example, has some very, very uh, clear objectives in terms of raw water quality for treatment for human consumption, uh, but because there isn't any uh, publicly available data for New South Wales, which comprises most of the basin, it's really not possible for us to see uh, how we're going on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in terms of water quality for the approximately 2 million people um, who rely uh, on, on the rivers and, and, and the catchments um, in the basin. So, you know, it's, it's an important start to have a national drinking water quality database. Um, then you need to think about uh, how you're going to be able to, to, to use it in practice. I think you know, Im implicit or perhaps explicit actually in your in your response there, Paul, is is just how complex the policy and the governance landscape is around these issues. Um, and, and Evie, I wonder if we could perhaps focus a little bit on the Northern Territory and what's your sense of how the Northern Territory government has tried to address some of the water challenges that Territorians are facing. Um, and is this something that the Territory Government can do on its own or, or or how much is this bound up in those complexities that Paul's mapped out? Yeah, uh, look, it's it's really complicated question. Um, I think that it is heavily bound up in what Paul is talking about and I think that, you know, what Paul's really talking about is that a lot of these issues aren't just about technical solutions, as Paul was saying. It's, you know, not just about, I mean, that's really important we do need solutions, we do need innovative technologies, but it's really about addressing fundamental governance problems that we have in the NT, but I think also more broadly um, around drinking water and the protections that people have and how they're differentiated. The legislative framework in the NT at the moment actually doesn't protect communities on Aboriginal land in terms of safe drinking water safe drinking water guidelines, there are no mandated minimum standards. Something like that is the sort of um, political shifts we need to see in the NT um, to actually ensure that people have their, drink their rights to safe drinking water protected. So we need clearer lines of accountability as well from government in the NT um, to, communi to communities and to utility providers, among other things. Mm. Evie, can are you able to, to to talk us through what the background is to to the reason that um, Aboriginal lands are, are not included in in terms of the, the the thinking and the policies around clean drinking water? You know, w why do we have that exception? There's some really important work that's been done by Kirsty Howie and Liam Greeley that gets straight to the nut of that issue. Um, and it's, they, they talk about the Water Act, um, the key legislative framework for governing how water is used in the NT, and the way that it's been designed is that it only operates in gazetted towns where water allocation plans apply, and on Aboriginal land, which is outside of those areas, there is no, um, there are not the same protections, and they are, Power and Water is the Northern Territory utility provider for essential services in across the whole of the Northern Territory. But in remote communities on Aboriginal land, it's actually operated by Indigenous Essential Services, which is a subsidiary body of power and water. And that's part of that. That's part of the way that that's been set up. Yeah. Australia's obviously had a change of federal government in the last couple of months. And I'm wondering how the, the two of you might feel about this. 
Is the new Australian government taking a different approach than its predecessors when it comes to water policy? I guess particularly trying to iron out that really complex territory between state and territory um, and federal policy. Uh, and, and if you're seeing the glimmers of hope, would you like to share them? Paul, what are your thoughts? Oh, look, I, I think it's probably too early to say, Anna Greta. Um, you know, there, there, there is that commitment to expand the remit of the National uh, uh, Water Grid Fund. Uh, the question will be is, as to whether that, that fund and its operation is adapted uh, to a very, very different context. So building irrigation infrastructure and subsidising irrigation infrastructure uh, is very, very different context to supporting improvements uh, in drinking water um, for regional and, and remote communities. Um, so we, you know, Minister Plibersek um, has, has pointed towards uh, improved outcomes in terms of environmental watering uh, for the Murray-Darling Basin as, as being a real priority. Senator McCarthy as well um, and Minister Burney too have made some very strong statements in terms of closing uh, the gap agreement. Um, so you know we'll we'll just I think uh, we'll just we'll just have to have to say um, yeah. Evie, have you got any thoughts about any glimmers of hope that you see after the change of federal government? Yeah, I agree. It's too early to say, um, but I do have hope that there will be some. Real changes implemented. I know that under the closing the gap targets, they have introduced a new target around community infrastructure and parity of essential services. And I think even using language around parity is really important because it highlights that there's currently disparity and that a lot of what remote communities are really asking for and looking for is just the same standards as we have in the rest of Australia. We've been talking about whether there are moments of hope after the most recent Australian federal election and certainly one of the moments of inspiration as the government changed was hearing the new language around reconciliation um, and adopting the Uluru Statement. One of the Labor Party's policy platforms has been around the Uluru Statement from the Heart and enshrining a voice to Parliament for First Nations Australians and that is obviously a process that's actively underway. Has there been movement in the area of water to ensure greater equity in water policy, particularly in improving access to safer drinking water, which obviously is an issue that's affecting Indigenous Australians, First Nations Australians, particularly in the Northern Territory, in ways that parallel the conversation we had a week ago about energy security, water security, adequacy of housing in these regions? Do you think that the the, the enthusiasm around the Uluru Statement from the Heart will be, work as a point of advocacy for First Nations Australians? Evie, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are that I hope so. I do think that while it's the responsibility of states and territories, things like the Uluru Statement of the Heart and that being espoused in federal narratives is really can be really important. It was Paul and I both went to a conference um, last week called Voices for the Bush, which was all about a national drinking water. It was the first national drinking water conference held here in Alice Springs. And quite a few of the speakers, Senator Melindiri McCarthy, um, actually spoke about the Uluru Statement of the Heart, which was a really powerful framing and a really good reminder um, that struggles for drinking water in remote communities are really are part of these broader struggles for self-determination and managing resources. Um, so I hope so. <laughs> The recent State of the Environment report, which we've been talking about quite a lot um, on the pod in recent weeks, makes explicit mention of how climate change is threatening Australia's water resources. Well, what does the new government need to do to ensure that inland water in particular is managed effectively and equitably in the face of increasingly frequent and increasingly severe weather events? That's a great question, Sharon. Uh, I, I guess... Uh, where, where I am right now, I'm in the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, so a really important step will be to incorporate climate change in, in a meaningful way in terms of uh, how the Murray-Darling Basin is managed and the amount of water that's allowed to be taken out of the rivers and out of, out of the aquifers, um, and that's also that's intercepted uh, across land. Um, so it's going to be really important for the federal government to take a, a leadership role 
uh, in ensuring that the uh, decisions that states are making uh, around licensing um, mean that we end up with uh, sustainable um, yeah, sustainable management, you know, healthy rivers, health, healthy waterways, um, which is so fundamental to, uh, you know, not just drinking water but in terms of um, connections to country, um, ecosystems, uh, you know, all, all of the important things in the life um, that, that depends upon our waterways. So in terms of climate change as well, uh, we really need to think about uh, flooding and flood risk. Um, so uh, recently there have been bore water alerts uh, up and down the east coast of Australia. Uh, it's going to be really important to ensure that in those situations people do have access uh, to safe drinking water uh, and um, you know, ha- however that is determined in terms of being part of an emergency response. So it's not just about having less water. It's also about managing those extreme events and, and being prepared. But really, ultimately, uh, it's it's really important to sustain the waterways that we have and the aquifers that we have um, to ensure that they're resilient and are able to provide drinking water services, water filtration, uh, and we're not we're not ha- in those situations where where towns and communities. Are running out of water, or the quality of water is 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 being degraded, and we've we've seen we, we need to keep in mind as well that climate change is a uh, what people talk about as a compound risk or, or a risk multiplier. So we saw the situation with mass fish kills um, out on the, the the Barker Darling River a number of years ago. Uh, now there was a drought. Uh, climate change is potentially a compounding factor, but also the fact of the matter is that too much water was being extracted upstream. So uh, we really need to think about how we're managing our waterways in a more precautionary way um, so that uh, extreme impacts of climate change, particularly in terms of, of um, less rainfall, less precipitation, um, that we've got some, some buffers there. This conversation today is part of a a mini-series of discussions around the complex policy challenges that we face, particularly here in Australia. We've talked about climate change and we've talked about biodiversity. We've spent time reflecting on the State of the Environment report uh, and we've talked last week about energy. We've spent quite a bit of time in the last decade or so mapping out the problems and it does strike many of the people we've spoken to that there's an opportunity for transformative change to address a particular system problem. The two of you have done such a superb job today of mapping the complexity of a system. Um, And what I'm wondering, uh, as we bring today's conversation toward a close, is asking you on whether the current system is fit for purpose. And if we're bringing in in a new way of doing things, if we're looking for a a new and imaginative way to solve complex problems, what would you like to see change about how water policy is made in Australia? Yeah, look, thanks for the very big question. Um, mm. If I'm, I kind of waver. Sometimes I feel more cynical. Sometimes I feel more hopeful. I am at the moment feeling that as a whole, our system is not fit for purpose. The way that I'm seeing it in the NT at the moment is failing a lot of people in remote communities. And I think that it does need to, we do need to have massive shifts in the way that water policy is regulated um, and the way that water policy is made, starting by really working on thorough and proper engagement and consultation with Aboriginal communities that means that they are actually leading initiatives and programs around how that change might take place. Paul, what are your thoughts how, is this current system fit for purpose? What changes should we make? Well, Anna Greta, I'm, a, I'm an economist, so. <laughs> yes, we uh, like econo- changing economic systems. <laughs> um, well, I wasn't going to talk about changing economic systems necessarily, <laughs> but. What about uh, a well-being eco- economy? Eco- economists are often, you know, uh, uh, accused of relying too much on numbers and, and, and thinking about those sorts of things, but. It comes down to that old business saying, you can't manage what you don't measure. And I think that's one of the things that we've pointed out in this paper is that if uh, you know, Australians 
um, broadly speaking, people who live on the Australian continent and and the governments of the various jurisdictions uh, would like to ensure that all people living in Australia have access to safe, good quality water. Well, we don't know what's going on first, uh, and that that's absolutely fundamental. Um, so, yeah, we've got to get the basics right. Um, you know, there are a lot of people in the water industry and in government who, are, who have been working very hard for a very long time uh, in order to make sure that uh, everybody in Australia does have the quality of access to water that such a rich country um, uh, should have, people, residents of a rich country deserve, um, not deserve, but that they should have. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people working on this and there are a lot of challenges and it's very difficult, uh, particularly in remote places. But if if we can spend, um, commit $9 billion to investing in uh, new irrigation infrastructure, for example, as has been happening over the last few years and has been committed, um, well, we can start thinking about making some major investments um, in both the hard, the soft and the natural infrastructure that is going to um, support those, those, those changes. So, yeah, we, we can make investments, um, we can make improvements, but we need to understand the situation to start with. And that's why we need a national drinking water quality database. That is a fantastic place to leave what's been a really remarkable discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. We look forward to coming back to you in the future to go back and see how well we do. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Sharon, that was such a great conversation with Paul and Evie today about water and the water policy challenges that we face in Australia and the parallels that we hear in the energy challenges in rural and remote Australia, particularly in First Nations locations in the Northern Territory. But I know that that is an issue in a broader sense and it's actually well described in that piece that we referred to at the beginning um, that was published in Nature recently. It really strikes me both with the energy conversation last week and again with today's conversation that these public policy issues have such a profound impact on our health and well-being. And the, the part of closing the loop from my perspective in terms of our public policy intervention is thinking more about the health impacts, the well-being impacts of the sorts of policy decisions we might make when we're think, thinking about transportation or thinking about energy or thinking about water supply. The access to water supply in parts of rural and regional and remote Australia have such profound impacts on the health and well-being of those communities and put them at a long-term disadvantage. It's a gap that can't be closed unless we address those challenges. And I think a lot about the environmental impacts on our health and a model that I've been playing with over the last couple of years of how the environment impacts on our health and well-being is through the air that we breathe, through the food that we eat, through the water that we need to survive. And then those sorts of climatic and weather events that really impact on us, particularly where our built environment is either adequate or inadequate uh, to provide us with adequate heating or adequate protection uh, from flooding and from, from the extreme weather events that are occurring with increasing frequency. These are really complex challenges, I think, from a policy perspective, and I can't tell you how excited I am that we're able to have these robust discussions and we're looking toward a prospect of change. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I I thought this was such a fascinating conversation. Um and I think these two episodes put together, you know, the 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 episode last week on on energy and then today talking about water raise such similar issues in terms of the challenges that we're facing. And I guess as I reflect on this Anagreta, you know, I, I tend to think about this in the context of multidimensional poverty. And I think in Australia we have come to a place where we're reluctant to even use the term poverty often. And I think part of that is because poverty has been used to stigmatise and to shame individuals rather than as a lens through which to consider the the structural problems and the way in which systems are failing people and the kinds of policy choices that actually lead people towards poverty rather than leading them away from it. And so I think about some of the work that I've been involved in um, internationally, and there we see a lack of access to energy, a lack of access to water as part of multidimensional poverty. And I think we need to start having some of those conversations in Australia. I agree with you entirely that these are wellbeing issues, these are about people's health. 
But when we talk about well-being and when we start to think about moving towards a well-being economy, um, or at least as a first step towards a well-being budget, we have to ask ourselves, do we have the very foundations in place on which to build a well-being approach? And unless we start to think about the gaps and unless we start to think about where multidimensional poverty exists and how we address that, we're still going to have very, very shaky foundations on which to build a society that values well-being. Um, so for me, you know, those issues of, of multidimensional poverty are really important to think about as we think about these issues. Um, and and I also just wanted to flag, you know, we had a, a, an off-mic conversation at the end um, with Evie and Paul, and Evie was making the point that there are so many people across the communities that she is working in that are working so incredibly hard to change things. Um and I think we do need to keep in mind just how many people are, are committed and how many people are really working very hard to make things better. And I think talking about how we, we think of these issues through a lens of multidimensional poverty doesn't mean we're blaming people or we're disparaging the work that they do. Um, it's about saying, how do we really shift the ground so that we can address these issues? But what fantastic conversations are, Greta, and how important it is to have these conversations when we think about the ways in which we could transform this country and and, and beyond. Mm, absolutely. And there they are, those themes again that we've mentioned on previous podcasts, particularly in this series, of thinking across disciplinary silos, of bringing in perspectives from different professional groups and different groups of our society and beginning to have, develop a lens which allows us to see the future, thinking about the intergenerational consequences of the decisions we make today. Really fascinating to see the sorts of themes that emerge across a quite ra wide range so far of conversations we've had. And I know we've got some great conversations coming up in the weeks ahead. So, listeners, we will leave a link to the publications that we've discussed today in the show notes. We love hearing from our audience. We love feedback. We love ideas. We love sharing and debating. And so please reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum. Send us an email or join us on Facebook using the Policy Forum pod. Uh, if you type that into the search bar, you'll find a lovely group of people who are talking about some of these issues. We will, of course, be back next week to continue our series on systems under strain. But from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we look forward to seeing you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.